This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings from iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled War Ready in My Father's Shadow. And joining me from Texas near the Houston area is author Mary Lou Darst. Welcome to the program, Mary Lou. Thank you, Jay. Thank you very much. Well, this is an interesting book. Most uh, most of my authors, a lot of authors, will write uh, biographical sketches and uh, and and uh, books about their history and their life. It seems to be something sometimes that's a reflection or a, a way to honor parents or or upbringing. What was the purpose behind writing War Ready? Well, there were a couple of things. First of all, um, I began to think that maybe my grandsons should know the stories, know about their grandmother. And then I also wanted to honor my brother and my parents. Um, it was not such an easy life, and we did it, and um, I did want to honor my parents and my brother with the stories. And and thirdly, um, military families. Uh, not, not much is given to military families. It's always right the husband, the brother, the cousin, the men that go off to war, which are so deservedly of of um, credits. But military families uh, serve, too, in lots of different ways. Absolutely. You, your book really covers your upbringing till about age 16 when the military service, uh, I guess, dissipated in your family. Is that correct with your father? Yes. And, yes. and where, was where, where was his primary service, and what time frame are we talking about? Well, we're talking like from the end of World War II through the cold to the almost the end of the Cold War. Uh, so, but I was born in 1943, and he was away. He was in the war in England, and then when he came back, we moved. Uh, we moved every 18 months, and sometimes twice in one assignment from one neighborhood to another. Something. Uh, we lived in Alaska. Uh, I went to the first grade before Alaska was a state. And then um, in the middle 40s, and then uh, we lived in Japan seven years after the war, and six years later we lived in Munich, Germany. Yeah, you, and in between, we lived in lots of states. You also <laughs> mentioned the different wars that your father was involved in. What was his capacity? Was he in leadership in these uh, military uh, assignments, or how was he? How would you describe it? He was an army engineer, and he never talked about his work or what he did and we were not to ask i i can't say but he was uh, at one time he was a commander in japan when we lived there of of the engineers he was something like that he had terrific leadership qualities so i would not be surprised if he were in leadership in many things would would you call your observations of him in hindsight maybe ptsd that was uh, part of uh, part of that environment that family uh, structure yes my brother and i often talked uh while i was doing the book and uh, we both believed that he had strong symptoms of ptsd 
But like all men, all warriors, soldiers of that period, nobody talked about their experiences. Yes. No one talked about it. Yes, he he had some difficulty, especially with uh, with Korea, the Korean War. If I understand your your book correctly, right? We never even knew that he was in Korea. Wow! No one, my brother and I, no one said. You know, when we said goodbye to him, my mother was just dissolved in tears, and he left, and no one ever said. I mean, when he wrote letters or anything, no one ever said anything about Korea to us, and then. After about a year and a half, we were my brother and my mother and I were on our way to Nara, Japan, and he, he met us there. Interesting. And we did not know he'd even been there, my brother and I, until we were taking things out of his dresser after my parents had passed away. And we found at the bottom of drawer certificates and medals for service in Korea. Hmm. We just fainted. We couldn't believe it. You anyway. you have titled your book War Ready, and then the subtitle mm-hmm. In My Father's Shadow. In My Father's Shadow right. has a significance to you. What is that? Um, I was in his shadow. <laughs> he was a strong <laughs> parent. Yes. He was military through and through, and he expected everyone around him to be the same way. And um, so that's that's probably where that came from. Did, did you? Did you? I, 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 as as is obvious in your book, you love your dad. But was there also an element of uh, concern or fear or uh, awe that yeah, also accompanied that? Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of that. A lot of that. Of the, lot of, of that. the time that you spent in traveling about the globe, which was your favorite place to live? I have to say, not at Japan. It, we, as I said, we lived there seven years after the war. It was so different. It was still, there was still a lot of old Japan there. The women were beautiful, kimono, zorian geita, um, and there were there were people in Western clothes. I mean, skirts and men with slacks and and shirts. Um, but it was still very much old Japan. And um, very, very different. Everything was very different. And I was 10 years old. I was five feet tall. And I was taller than most Japanese people. Fascinating. Um, even the women who wore Zorian geita. The geitas were maybe three, maybe three, four inches off the ground. And I was still taller. And it was it was an amazing experience. Your observations of Germany. You also lived in Germany after the war. Right. About 13 years later. It was obvious that there had been an absolutely horrific war. 13 years later, there was still so much, so many, the ruins, you know, the, the bullets and all, the, all those things that, that you know about already. Yes, the history was still still evident. Right. You have right. also mentioned something that was, uh, I guess, curiosity in my reading aspect of it. You, on your final uh, return to the United States by ship, you were on board and right. uh, writing letters, and you looked up, and there was this strange-looking gentleman over in the corner that seems to be uh, seemed to be fascinated by you and your appearance. Share with my listeners a little of that story and uh, who that was. 
well, you're kind to, to introduce that scene like that. It was Salvador Dali, the uh, the artist, painter. Um, he was very dramatic looking, his little pencil, thin mustache that curled on the edges, edges and stared, you know. And uh, my mother came and whispered to me while I was writing letters on the stationery of the ship, and uh, she said, that's Salvador Dali. And I said, who is he? Who is Salvador Dali? <laughs> An artist. And so I, I didn't look at him. I didn't know him. I didn't want him to stare at me. <laughs> I finished writing, and I looked up, and he was still staring. But I think that was just his demeanor. Mm-hmm. And I, we, we saw them later in the in the lounge after supper. He was sitting with his lovely wife and still staring at everyone. So Amazing. that was his demeanor. He was a very intense, yeah. an intense individual. Maybe yeah. making mental notes for for sketches later. Who knows? You have uh, right. also included a lot of interesting photos in your book. Uh, where, which of the of the photos do you think our our readers are going to find most interesting? Well, there's some from Alaska with the snow, and um, there's a picture my mother took of us in the spring, and in the same in the same position in the same area, in the front yard. In winter, it's just <laughs> covered with white and bundled up in padded. Um, winter winter snowsuits. Um, the ones from Japan are uh, are most most special to me. Uh, there's a picture of us with our little maid Hatsi in front of the old Japanese house where we lived. Um, Hatsi was like a member of our family. She was so dear. And um, then there's one in the first chapter, first page of the story of. Munich, uh, with Mr. Gruckenberg, Helga, and myself, and we're all in bathing suits. Mm-hmm. Mr. Gruckenberg has on his robe. Um, the Gruckenberg family were family to us. They were so kind to us, and we did things with them, went places with them at their house and at our house. So they were they were like family to us. And if you don't mind my saying, um, in twenty. 20- we were invited to Munich to give a book talk and reunited with Helga and Gerhardt. Hmm. Um, invited us to their home. It, gosh, after 53 years, I can't tell you what that's like. And it's hard to think about it without crocodile tears, so I'll well, let it go. <laughs> your your book is has taken really, although it is a biographical sketch of your life and your family's life, it really could be looked at in some respects as a, a, a narrative or just a novel uh, because you've done a conversational style. Was that the best way to describe what you've done? Well, yes, and I, I appreciate that. Uh, I just felt like I was telling my story to people, but I was writing it down instead of telling it. Thank you. And how long did it take to complete? Well, um, like I said, I wrote two books at one time. And I was in a writing class and uh, at the time. And so I would say um, maybe four or five years. There was an incredible amount of emotion that I relived while writing that book and um, that I had not experienced um, growing up and um, 
that emotion came forward and expressed itself. And so it was a growing experience for me to do the book. I grew a lot as a person. As as a writer now, an author, looking back over what you have penned, is there something that came through that you didn't really plan on in the first place, uh, such as a, maybe an underlying message or a th- or something that will will encourage or inspire the reader? Well, that's very kind. Um, well, my relationship with my father uh, was very tricky, and that's um, that's very apparent in the book. Um, and in our relationships with people in other cultures, uh, that was a wonderful experience, and I'm intensely grateful for the travel experiences that we had. Um, living in other cultures, being part of that culture, learning languages, um, it, it was just an incredible experience, and I hope that I've imparted that in the book that other people can see and realize how important it is to know other cultures. Well, thank you for sharing your memoir and the process of writing War Ready in My Father's Shadow. My guest, Mary Lou Darst. Mary Lou, my listeners will want to get a copy of this or need to get a copy of this. It's part uh, travelogue, part personal family history, and uh, just a, a good read. How do they get a hold of War Ready? Thank you kindly. Um, it's available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and iUniverse.com, all three of those. Is there a possibility you have a website developed yet? I I do, but I don't have it within my brain. Okay, not a problem. They can, <laughs> do, a, they can do a search under your name, uh, two, two words or two names, Mary Lou, L-O-U, and Darst is spelled D-A-R-S-T. If they do a search under that, they will be able to also locate okay. uh, War Ready and probably your website. So thank you again for joining thank me today you. and sharing your story. Blessings. Thank you kindly. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book is Anger Management. And the uh, graphics on the cover say uh, this, what's in the cup? Joining me from Illinois in the United States of America is author Mark Strickland. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. I love the fact that this is a relatively short book. You have uh, an extensive background in psychology and other areas, uh, doing workshops and mentoring and and uh, helping other businesses and individuals. This book is an outcropping or an extension of that work, if I'm understanding it correctly. And it's uh, a short read, 102 pages or so. How did you decide that you wanted to put something in print? Well, um, thank you for the question. I, I did want to keep it very small and simple for that reason. Um, a lot of the books I read on anger management are very lengthy and technical and very hard to get through. And so I just wanted to break this down into anger's most simplest forms and some ideas and techniques to to, to deal with anger. And the book came out of um, my seminars that I was teaching, working with those struggling with addictions. I do volunteer work, um, meeting in transitional shelters. And so the book came out of that. Uh, and I'm excited about it and uh, looking forward to seeing where it goes from there. Was there any family references that uh, maybe spurred you to get involved in this, this area of the industry? No, not really. Um, my own personal uh, struggle with anger Uh, growing up in a home where you heard the message, uh, you shouldn't be angry, you shouldn't be angry, you shouldn't be angry, and not really having any role models or anybody that showed or or explained that it's okay to be angry, just uh, be appropriate in uh, your response to it. So um, the book is really part of the journey of my own personal life. Uh, excellent. Thank you for sharing that. You have, uh, of course, dealt with or are dealing with a subject matter that all of us, I think, deal with to some capacity. I have met people that claim they never get upset or angry and don't have any stress in their life. Is this something that is environmental in its uh, origins, or is it personality? Is it DNA? How would you? Uh, what have you discovered? Well, uh, like you, I've met people that say they never get angry and. And for the most part, I have a hard time believing that because my definition of what makes you angry is very organic. It's just simply this. You get angry when you have an unmet expectation. Hmm. Now, expectations can take two forms, things that should happen and things that should not happen. So if you're a person that has no expectations in life, and then, yeah, then you won't, you won't get angry. If you don't care about anything, if you just... Case hurrah, hurrah about everything in life, then you will not be an angry person. But if you care about things passionately, you have strong opinions, if you have a list of things, how should things operate, how things should not operate, then you are going to experience the emotion of anger. And that is just common to all mankind. So, in, in psych class, I think the term sanguine, is that uh, apply to someone that has very little uh, ups and downs? Yeah, there's all types of personality tests. Um, You know, they have different names in my book. I I use different uh, labels. But, yeah, personality does play a part in anger management. Um, If if you're sanguine, then you are emotionally by nature. But still, anybody with a personality uh, will struggle with anger or will have experience the emotion of anger if they have an expectation. So, 
in my seminars, I, in my very first part, I stick a $20 bill up on the board or if I'm doing a uh, video presentation and I ask them, if you want to win my money, just give me an event in your life where you got angry and you have no expectations and I'll give you 20 bucks. Uh-huh. I've never lost. Never, never, never lost. In your 19 chapters, one of them uh, talks about global anger. Is that anger that is outside of the, of, of your control, or is that something else? Well, it, 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 it's, yeah, a lot of times you hear me say the word depends, because anger management is just that. It's allowing yourself to experience the emotion of anger and managing that. And a lot of things depends. It depends. What I call global management is uh, a global anger is all about uh, just not being happy with your life. So you just wake up in the morning mad and angry because things are just not going your way. It's just all over. And sometimes it's very hard to pinpoint why you are angry uh, in specifics because uh, your, your life is not where it should be. Well, let me correct one thing. Rather than nineteen page, uh, nineteen chapters. I'm sorry, it's twenty three chapters. Uh, I have a family member. I remember as a child that just for whatever reason had a lot of anger and uh, frustration when they were you know two, three, four years old. Do you see that in some children where they just are are have difficulty controlling their emotions? That almost indicates that it was uh, something hereditary. Perhaps is that anything that you have discovered? Yes, uh, there's always a genetic component, an environmental component uh, involved in how we experience anger and have emotions. We all have different makeups, and yes, uh, it's different from person to person, but getting to know yourself and what your personality type is like and understanding the, the positive aspects and the negative aspects of that personality, those that have that kind of trouble controlling their ten, you know, tantrums and stuff like that are usually very passionate people. And when they apply that passion in the right direction can accomplish much. I agree. That That is a, a fantastic analysis. Your book style, what would you say is the way it communicates? Is this a simple-to-read book? Is it one for upper management, or is it something that everyone can adapt and, and learn from? Well, I, I, I it's almost like... I'm speaking in front of you, just like we're talking today. It's very conversational, and I do speak from a very personal point of view, uh, giving examples from my life. Uh, the first time I wrote the book was very technical. It was like I was writing a thesis paper, and it was hundreds of pages of, uh, of technical information and research. And, and um, I, I, I rewrote the book when I hired an artist, to do a book cover and I had some ideas about some cartoons and he was just fabulous and he was amused. I rewrote the whole book and, and, and made it almost like anger for dummies type of thing. Just uh, very simple. You have also included some work pages or worksheets, ways to self-analysis. I'm saying it that way. I don't know if that's correct. Mm-hmm. But there is a chapter that deals with analyticals. Describe for my readers how they can take a look at their own personality and maybe adapt some of the techniques. Well, I like I said, there's different labels for different personalities. I break them down into four areas, uh, driver, um, amiable, analytical, and um, 
uh, one starts with the E. Uh, yeah, the E word. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let me go, anyway. let me go find that it's uh, in chapter uh, <laughs> chapter twenty two chapter twenty two what you have uh, outlined there is uh, something that can be adaptable to anybody. I was looking at that and wanting to discover you know better ways to dealing with things because I'm expressive and I believe e as in expressive is the word you're trying to find expressive yeah, the, um, expressive is uh, the the other personality. Um, for instance, if if you take a little simple ten question test and it's not an all inclusive, all knowing test, it just kind of gives you a guideline. If you're a driver type of a personality, um, you're a person that likes to be in charge. You're goal oriented, so you use anger to get your way, mm. and that's why you find a lot of people who are drivers yelling and screaming and out of control because we tell. Those kind of people, oh, if you're that angry, go ahead, and, and, and we give in to it. So we re- re- reinforce that type of behavior for those that have a driver personality. They uh, use anger to manipulate and to get things done. Mm. But if you're an expressive type of person, um, you just like to be, your, your goal is to be recognized, and you're you're the, the sanguine type of person, up and down, emotional, and you just want to be recognized. So. Your motivation in sharing, a lot of times your feelings, is just for people to acknowledge. And the problem is, is not everybody is expressive. And when people share too much feeling, we kind of put up our fingers in the form of a cross and say, TMI, too much information. So uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Jay. Yeah, there's and there's a blend of, of those personality traits in many people as well, I would think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you you have to eat the chicken and leave the bones. You can't, you know, we, we probably a little bit of all of them, you know. So, yeah, and, and then the amiable person, their, their, their goal in life is just to be accepted, and they just want to get along, and they usually don't have this outburst of displays of anger because they don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to rock the boat. So if you're an amiable person, you're a people person. You'll just kind of suck it up and let it go. But then if you're an analytical person, you, you have the priority of being right. You want to be right. And so you're argumentative a lot of times. You're trying to prove your way. And you do research. And and um, so in your anger, you, you have the tendency to be quiet but seek ways of getting even and revenge because mm. you're smart. Mm. <laughs> or at least you think you are. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> Introduce this book to my listeners in a couple of sentences, the way you would to someone on the street that doesn't know uh, Mark Strickland as an author. Well, I would tell people, and this conversation comes up quite a bit when I'm in um, different fundraisers and events, and, and I'm sitting next to lawyers and judges and circuit clerks, and, and, and I tell them, you know, ang- I first I ask them, is, is, angry, is it okay to be angry? And inevitably, most people say yes. Hmm. So being angry is not the problem. It's how we um, respond to our anger, and that is in a cultural uh, setting. So what's good in other places is not so good in other places. So let me just simply say this. It's okay to be angry, and your anger comes from unmet expectations. So anger management is really managing your expectations. 
Fabulous. The title of the book, again, is Anger Management, and expectation is uh, superimposed over top of that anger word, and subtitled A Simple Guide to Managing Life's Expectations, uh, colorfully illustrated on the front cover and uh, some on the inside. Uh, again, a short read, read 107 pages. Uh, it is a wonderfully done book and simple for anyone that might be dealing with anger issues in their life or know someone that is, this is a great book to pass along. Uh, Mark, where can my listeners get a copy of Anger Management? Well, you can get it online with Amazon or Barnes & Noble or, um, or from iUniverse. Excellent. And they can also do a search under your name, Mark Strickland, S-T-R-I-C-K-L-I-N, and uh, locate this. And uh, are there books in the future? Have you perhaps uh, decided to do a sequel? Um, I've I've been asked to do that. There's a lot of interest in how do you deal with angry people, hmm. and I do have a chapter in that. But that's that's a very interesting topic because a lot of people say, you know, I don't have an anger problem, but my husband does, my <laughs> wife does, my <laughs> uncle does. Oh yeah. And how do you deal with that? Hmm. So maybe in the future I'll do a little bit more expansion on how to deal with angry people. Hopefully you'll let us uh, visit visit again if that, that should take place. Mark, have you developed a website as yet? Uh, yes, I, I do, Jay. It's www.angerexpectations.com. And expectations with an S, correct? Correct. Fantastic. Again, the title, Anger Management, the author, Mark Strickland. Great visiting with you, sir. Best of luck with this book, and I would urge my listeners, everyone knows someone that has a problem with anger, so they need to get a copy of your book. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Jay, for having me. It was a pleasure. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Parker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert Annette Hammond. When your focus is to lose weight or maintain your present weight, exercising effectively to burn the most calories is crucial. You want to give yourself every advantage to burn as many calories as possible. One good tip is to do your strength training exercises standing up so you can keep your heart rate up. Another tip is to perform multi-joint exercises when you can. For example, as you're doing a forward lunge, add bicep curls while you're coming up from the lunge. Another example is to execute a wide squat. And as you're coming up from the squat, perform a shoulder press. By doing these multi-joint exercises, you're putting more demands on your body, keeping your heart rate up, and working more muscles at the same time. The goal is to burn the most calories during that workout. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, Leading the Way, Behaviors That Drive Success. And the author is Paulette Ashlin. And Paulette joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Paulette. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us, Paulette. Leading, that is a role that a lot of people struggle with, and yet it's so important to have that confidence, I guess, and learn how to develop that confidence because... As you put it, behaviors that drive success, 
that's what you are all about. You're helping us understand how to attain those right behaviors for success. That's exactly right. And to begin with, we probably need to have a good definition of leadership because there are so many of them across the world. And one of the best quotes I've heard is that a leader is someone who can get people to do things voluntarily, the things that must be done. So how does a leader do that? It's through behavior and through actions and communication that inspire people to want to follow them. So it's, it's a way to motivate and inspire people. And the book describes behaviors that are pretty standard in the Western corporate world that drive success from individual contributorship all the way up to CEO level. And I love what you emphasize right at the beginning of your book, right in the introduction. We all know the the great name of Vince Lombardi. What a great leader and a demander of excellence. And as he put it, leaders aren't born, they are made. So it just takes a lot of hard work and you have to have a model. And that's what you're all about. Exactly. Leading the way, the book, describes consistent leadership principles that have driven people to success. And it's broken into different chapters, beginning with follow the leader. There's a concept called fishbowl leadership that I write about in the book. And that is once you're a leader, you're basically in the limelight. You are in a fishbowl. You're a mini celebrity, and people are watching and listening. They're watching your every move, your every behavior, and listening to your every word. So the book goes on to describe the behaviors that actually motivate people to follow their lead in a productive way, not in a manipulative, mean, political way, but in a way that inspires people to have common goals and be very productive. So Vince Lombardi said, yes, it's, it's a hard thing to do, and you have to work at it. There are some people who think that leaders are born, so there are some assumptions in the book. There are assumptions that we're talking about successful people who are technically competent, who are level-headed, and know what they're doing. And then we build on those competencies and describe the behaviors that can drive them to further success. So you have to have the right attitude in order to realize that you can change your behavior at any time, at any age, at any level of experience, you can always be modifying that behavior to get the best results. Right. It's a matter of being motivated to change. And first and foremost, you must know what to change. So that's why the first chapter in the book is on self-awareness. And we give tips and steps on how to gain self-awareness, anywhere from getting, taking self-assessments and reviewing the results to asking people how they're being perceived. There's a lot of talk today about the younger generation, the millennials, all the challenges they're facing in this very fast-paced, confusing world. And of course, at the same time, technology is used by them pretty much exclusively and about everything they do. How do we help millennials become the best leaders they can be? I'm so glad you brought up the millennials. Initially, the book had targeted leaders and aspiring leaders who had work experience, but as the book has been well-received, some of my clients and client companies have said they're using the, the book and its principles to coach millennials. So millennials are idealistic, highly motivated, and creative. 
They also believe in a meritocracy, that is, they expect to be noticed, recognized, and rewarded for their results. And we've also noticed that they don't like to play political games, they shun hierarchies, and at the same time, they confuse some elements and essentials of relationship building with unattractive politics. And thanks to social media, and because they are the generation that has practiced relationship building the least, they seem lost when it comes to navigating connections and building bonds within the workplace. The book, Leading the Way, provides a roadmap for behavior, if you will, behaviors that can help them drive their, their careers and success. So it covers behaviors to increase self-awareness, self-control, empathy, empathy not to be confused with sympathy and compassion, but really to understand what people are thinking, humility, integrity, personal stewardship, especially communication, global intelligence, and acting. The millennials have hidden behind their technology and their social media. They've had a different definition of friendship and relationship building. It's been based on the number of likes they get on social media, for example. And they don't always seem to know, when they're dropped into the working world, how to nurture relationships to be more productive and effective. So hopefully the book will show them some steps, including how to communicate with other people verbally and in person. So important, even in this high-tech world that we can, as you just said, you know, be able to have face-to-face conversations and feel confident and be able to have them be the most effective. And this self-awareness that you've already talked about really lends itself to help people to develop that confidence. And one of the things that you emphasize in your book is empathy. Very key, isn't it, to being a leader? Absolutely. And the way I define empathy is the ability to understand what people are thinking and feeling and the ability to predict their behaviors. It's almost like reading people's minds. And imagine how powerful that could be if you could read people's minds so that you could influence them. Again, in a constructive way, not a manipulative way. The chapter on empathy talks about how to do that. So we have to learn our strengths, we have to learn our weaknesses, and then we have to understand how to have the right behavior to maximize all the talents and all the experiences we have, and it's ever-changing. Exactly. Exactly. It all builds on itself. So the assumptions, as I mentioned earlier, are that you're technically competent and also that you do know your strengths and weaknesses. And if you don't, the first chapter addresses self-awareness and techniques for increasing self-awareness. Then the chapter on self-control builds on that. Once you know what you're like and how you are being perceived, you can control the image that you project. The third chapter is on empathy, which teaches people, including the millennials, how to get into other people's brain and to figure out what's going to motivate them and how you can lead them most effectively. There's a misconception that effective empathy is treating people the way you want to be treated, And it's not about that at all. Empathy is about treating people the way they would want to be treated. I've had clients who who would tell me with very good intention, well, if it were me, I would blank. And and I would reply, it's not about you. Your constituents may have different values, different preferences, and are motivated in different ways than you are. It is incumbent upon you as a leader 
to figure out what motivates them and to read their minds and their body language and to influence them and inspire them in a way that is very individual. That's really good empathy. Oftentimes we think of a leader as being this tough, really confident lady man who who can just stand in front of people and express themselves in the strongest way and get their point across and make things happen. But you talk about humility. I mean, that just doesn't seem to fit. Yes. Time and time again, research shows that the most humble leaders are the most effective ones. And what I mean by humility is the ability to admit that you don't have all the answers. And it's counterintuitive, but very effective leaders are supremely self-confident. And in being self-confident, they are showing their humility. Humility is a measure of character that differentiates great leaders from the rest, in my opinion. And very arrogant people, the ones you were describing, tend to be super independent and want to go it alone and take the credit for things, whereas the humble people share credit, take the blame, acknowledge when they don't know something, they're relatively modest. They're not doormats. So we're not talking about subservience. We're talking about pure humility that is extremely attractive to other people. It's human nature. And at times, a leader, as you describe, the most effective leader, you have to perform, you have to become an actor. Yes, exactly. So the beginning of the book, we talk about the behavior model, and at the end of the book, we talk about acting. Through years and years of coaching people and working in the corporate environment, I noticed that some of the best leaders are superb actors. And I don't mean they're disingenuous and they're putting on a play or they're in a They're acting like in a movie all the time. They just know how to project. Just like an actor, great leader is aware of the way they're projecting to other people. They can modulate their voice and their communication, which is analogous to script. They have a wardrobe that they wear every day. They have a brand, which is like a costume. They know what their plot is, which is really their work environment, the the situation. So there are lots of analogies to acting. And when I'm coaching somebody who's having trouble adapting to different situations, I tell them to imagine different persona that is required in each setting. Every time somebody changes an audience, they're changing roles. So, for example, you'll have an executive who has a board meeting in the morning, walks out, walks down the hall, and says hi to people in the hallway. That's a different role. It requires a different persona walks onto a shop floor to talk to people, different persona. Every time they're switching settings, they need to think about what they want to project. And there are, again, tips in the back of the book on how to act like a great leader. Now, there is an assumption here that you are a good person also, that you are coming across as genuine. These are tips and helpful hints to enhance what some leaders already have but have not been able to articulate or project well. We've been listening to Paulette Ashlyn. She is the author of her book, Leading the Way, Behaviors That Drive Success. Paulette, tell us the best way to get your book. It is available at iUniverse.com, Amazon.com, and BarnesandNoble.com. Thank you so much, Paulette, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve.
iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.